This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to Episode 7 of Everything Compliance. In this episode, we take a look at the uh, first three weeks of the Trump administration with Matt Kelly taking a look at some uh, management business process issues and some markers he feels have been laid down around compliance, Dodd-Frank, and other regulatory issues. Jonathan Armstrong visits with us from his perspective of Across the Pond on data privacy, data shield, and general business issues that have arisen from the rollout of various executive orders by the Trump administration. Jay Rosen takes us through some of the business responses to the Trump uh, executive orders and from his perch in Southern California, how tech companies in California have responded to uh, some of the executive orders. It's a really a fascinating episode. I think you will uh, very much enjoy it. In the show notes, I will link to uh, everyone's writing on this, including myself. And the episode comes in at uh, just over 46 minutes. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to thank you very much for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and we are here for another episode of Everything Compliance. The Everything Compliance team today is Matt Kelly, founder and editor at Radical Compliance, Jay Rosens, Mr. Translations himself, and of course, Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Quartery Compliance from London, joining us across the pond. So, gentlemen, welcome. Hello. Hi there. Hello. So today we are going to take a look at the first three weeks of the Trump administration and what it might mean for compliance and perhaps uh, some broader business implications. All of us have written uh, some on this, and I thought it would be a good time to um, take a look at that. So, Matt, uh, you've written a couple of very interesting posts, uh, really uh, with uh, the refugee ban, with the five questions for Jay Clayton, the SEC nomination, and a couple of markers you wrote about. So uh, what uh, what have you seen over the past three li- weeks that either has particularly intrigued you or you think may be a, a portend of where compliance might be going down the road? Well, I'll start with what intrigues me, and then I'll talk a little bit about what I think might be coming. But, you know, when I look at the Trump administration Overall, I think the key theme there is um, ineptitude. These guys clearly don't know what they're doing. Now, I understand that part of that is because many members of the extended Trump cabinet and administration have not yet taken power. But the fundamental dynamic here is the administration has one message it wants to get out. And then Donald Trump himself tramples all over it and turns everything into a train wreck. So I don't foresee that changing anytime soon. Uh, just as one specific example, the very timely. So uh, at the time that we all are speaking now, last night, that federal appeals court uh, upheld the prohibition on his refugee ban and the Muslim Im- immigration uh, curtailments. And so immediately 
Donald Trump himself said, well, I'll see you guys in court, which I think a court would be happy to do because that's what they're paid to do is hang out at court. But anyways, here he is shooting his mouth off and the Justice Department had to say, well, we are reviewing our legal options and all of this. The departments are trying to keep some semblance of order, which compliance officers would like to see because they need effective and clear regulators on the other side of the table. But the president himself is all over the map. Uh, impulsive. There are plenty of people who would say he is not mentally sound or mentally competent to be president. I'm not going to touch that yet, but I think that we will see more of those conversations in coming months. But I don't know when we're going to get over this uh, sort of schizophrenia that we're getting from the Trump White House versus the rest of the administration. It's going to be a big problem. But, okay, some more specific things. What have we seen? Uh, A little bit of Clarity in what I said in one post I had on my blog this week about some markers coming. We have seen Jeff Sessions now is Attorney General of the United States. Uh, regardless of what you might think of his politics, where he comes down on civil rights or immigration, compliance officers, I think, can take away from that how his arrival, what that portends for enforcement. And I believe it's going to be more prosecution against individuals and less prosecution against companies. Uh, I think we will see the principles of the FCPA pilot program get enshrined as some sort of formal policy that if you can self-report misconduct, if you can help the Justice Department pursue said individuals, and if you can demonstrate that you are remediating the problems that caused or allowed this violation to take place, I don't think that Sessions is going to give you reduced fines. I think he's going to give you no fines. And I don't think you're going to get a non-prosecution agreement. I think you're going to get him saying, why are we talking about prosecution at all? He's going to decline to prosecute. Does mean compliance officers will need a program that can take advantage of that sort of uh, largesse. But um, that's one thing that happened this week that I think is telling. I think the other thing that is telling is the fate of the conflict minerals rule, where, number one, the acting SCC commissioner, Mike Piwawar, he has reopened that rule for more public comment. Uh, He clearly believes that it is not achieving the results that uh, Congress had wanted to see, which was choking off the economic lifeline to African warlords who use conflict minerals as a revenue source. Uh, we saw that from Michael Piwawar, and there are now reports that the Trump administration is preparing yet another executive order that is going to stall the conflict minerals rule for two years. Clearly, these things go hand in hand, stall compliance of the rule for two years until the SEC reconsiders it to miraculously decide it's not worth it or some sort of large exemption that many companies won't have to comply with it or something like that. All of this shows compliance officers how this administration might handle issues of disclosure, that I think you're going to see a lot of these social policies that are addressed by corporate disclosure, including CEO pay and other things like that. They're all going to be reconsidered out of existence, if not flat out repealed by Congress. And then it's they're always going to fall back to the idea that if social policy is so important to this company, Shareholders can just adopt a bylaw to do the same thing. And 
those Republicans who argue that are correct. That is a one viable argument to have. It's going to shift the debate over some of these issues from compliance to corporate governance and investor relations. It's going to shift it to how could you uh, manage this when the U.S. repeals one regulation, but it exists still in Canada and Europe and other jurisdictions. Uh, the conflict minerals rule is still coming in Europe, and that's not going to go away. So how does a large global company navigate all of this? There's going to be a lot of issues like that that companies are going to have to reflect about 2017. But that's that's it in a, a nutshell of what I think is going on at the moment. Well, Matt, let me pick up on your point about the uh, Jeff Sessions um, ascension to the uh, uh, attorney general role, but more um, more pointedly to your thoughts on how the pilot program may go to what you call its logical conclusion. There's been a a call over the past several years for a compliance defense. Some have tried to or have called for a compliance defense to be an absolute defense to the FCPA. How would you see the logical conclusion of the pilot program as either different or similar to a compliance defense? I would see it as very similar. Um, except that you only need to mount a defense when prosecutors are accusing you of something. So to a certain extent, on the criminal side, it could be a solution in search of a problem. If Jeff Sessions just decides as a matter of policy, he's not going to pursue companies uh, for misconduct except in egregious cases, then, okay, great, you have the defense, you don't need it, so what's the big deal? However, I do think we might see some changes on the SEC side around civil enforcement of books and records where you could see a defense uh, that if you have some required disclosure of a compliance program, which currently does not exist in SEC rules, but if the SEC promulgates a regulation FCPA, which has been an idea that's floated around from time to time, uh, and then if you meet those required disclosures, you're deemed to have an effective compliance program. Like that gets a lot closer to what you're talking about. And I could see that idea resurfacing on the civil side, which is also a way that companies get tied up in knots with FCPA compliance. So I don't know what we might see with it in Jeff Sessions, but I could certainly see the SEC revisiting this once Jay Clayton gets confirmed as the new SEC chairman which is something else I think is going to happen as sure as the sun rises at six in the morning. So let's see. The, uh, the other thing that intrigued me was it seemed to me you were saying as counterintuitive as this may be that if uh, Attorney, Attorney General Sessions or the Department of Justice moves forward to the logical conclusion of the pilot program, it will actually put more pressure on compliance programs and they will need to be more robust so that if uh, – an issue does arise and there is self-disclosure, the company can show that it took steps to have either a best practices or an effective compliance program, yet individuals uh, really of their own accord went off the reservation and engaged in illegal conduct. Did I read that correctly or into your post? I I think that is one possible outcome here because Jeff Sessions has said, I don't know if this is a direct quotation or not, but you know, that individuals commit crimes and companies do not. So why are we not going after the individuals who commit crimes? Um, It's a fair point of view. There may be others who would talk about uh, the need to hold corporations accountable at a holistic level. Um, So I think remediation programs and a demonstration of compliance efforts would be important. 
in theory, could Jeff Sessions turn a blind eye to that too? I suppose he could. I don't know that, um, like, how do you sell that though? Because it would raise accusations that this administration is not serious at all about corporate misconduct, you know, that you can really do anything so long as you rat out the actual guy who did it, we're not going to care. Um, that's going to be politically awkward. It will be awkward because Donald Trump is at the head of this administration, and there are many people who believe he is corrupt as the day is long, or he's got conflicts and he's not interested. And it would feed into the anti-Trump narrative that I'm sure a lot of Republicans would just wish it goes away and let them advance their own agenda, which they always had, regardless of Trump or not, of easier enforcement of regulatory uh, an easier regulatory climate that doesn't choke off corporations. You know, they're. I think a lot of Republicans in Washington go along with Donald Trump. They're willing to tolerate him, but I don't know that they buy into everything he says. And I don't think they like who he is as a person and what he seems to do in his behavior. There's, I think there's a lot of tension between the Trump administration and Trump. And there's a difference between those two things. Matt, if I could turn to your post on five questions for SEC nominee Jay Clayton, could you walk us through uh, the questions you would pose to him and why you think they're important? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I think that one of the questions I had, let me just make sure I can remember them all from memory here. Um, the very first question I had for Clayton, who, as I said, I do think he's going to get in. How would he like to reform corporate disclosure? Um, you know, I, what chairman, acting chairman Pivowart is doing right now, reconsidering the CEO pay ratio rule, reconsidering conflict minerals disclosure. Very clearly, Commissioner P. Wilwar is doing this because he wants these rules to go away. He wants them to go away because he does not think that the benefits of them uh, are worth the cost of compliance. Uh, there's a lot of other extra disclosure that goes into corporate reports these days. I don't think there's anybody anywhere who actually reads all every word of most reports, which can be hundreds and hundreds of pages now. A lot of SEC chairmen have talked about corporate disclosure reform in the past, and then as soon as they start to partake it seriously, they move on, and then a new chairman comes in, and the cycle begins again. How would Jay Clayton like to see corporate disclosure reform? Because clearly he's got a conservative bent. That's why he's a Republican, the nominee, and he'd like to see less of it. Well, how exactly would you like to see less of it? Are there less risks that you disclose, or do you disclose them in a more concise way? We don't know. Uh, another question I had, I mentioned before, this idea of a disclosure-based FCPA compliance regime. How would he make that work? And how would Jay Clayton allow a disclosure-based regime but still ensure this is not just paper-based compliance? We have to remember that Enron had a really great code of conduct that was just worth the paper it was printed on, which probably cost about three cents. And look at what happened to Enron. You see this time and again that companies have great paper programs on paper that they don't take seriously. A regulation FCPA sort of a thing would allow that risk to creep back into the picture if it's done carelessly. So how would we do it carefully and keep that out? That's another question I would have. Um, the third one, uh, I mentioned what Commissioner Piwawar is doing here. He is an economist by, trained, uh, by trade. Acting Commissioner Pivowar talks a lot about cost-benefit analyses of rules. That's fair. Um, but 
How would Jay Clayton view the cost and the benefit of regulations? How would he view Congress's efforts, specifically the extremists in the House, whether you think that's a loaded term or not, but they are determined now to impose serious reforms on the SEC, um, that they want cost-benefit analyses everywhere, every time to choke off the SEC's ability to issue any new rules at all. I don't think that's wise. You need a good regulator who can be responsive to the real world, not one that is hung up on some ideological devotion to cost-benefit analyses. Um, and how would you define the benefit? Let's remember, the financial crisis cost us $9.1 trillion in this country. I think the benefit of regulating derivatives before that would not have cost $9.1 trillion. But we didn't do it. You know, How are we going to articulate the hard costs assigned to real companies compared to the general benefit assigned to the public as a whole. That's difficult, but that's something that we would need to find. The last two are about the in-house administrative proceedings the SEC uses now to educate a lot of uh, enforcement matters. One appellate court has said these in-house proceedings, uh, how these judges are appointed is unconstitutional. Another one has said they are constitutional. We've got a uh, appellate court split. That's ugly. It has to be resolved somehow. Um, I'd be curious to see what Jay Clayton says there. And then lastly, what does he want to do with the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board? Jay Clayton will get to appoint a new chairman of the PCAOB. I don't imagine he's going to maintain J uh, Jim Doty, the current chair, but that person will get to dictate a lot of the PCAOB's agenda which therefore dictates what audit committee, uh, audit firms are going to do and therefore what your audit fees are going to be and what your audit committee complains to you about when they don't like what the audit firms do. So what are his views about the PCAOB, which is another agency that Republicans in Congress would love to just go away entirely? It's not going to, but how would they propose that? So those are my questions. So in Matt, I've got a question, um, if I may. Um, in, in the UK, we've had the we've had similar campaigns to reduce red tape, to remove regulation. We had something in the UK based on what I call in the home environment the soft toy rule. So we had an issue with my two daughters bringing home soft toys at every opportunity. So as the uh, as the very strict father you all know I am. I said, okay, for every toy that comes in the house, two must leave. And my soft toy rule probably lasted about three weeks. And then the government mimicked it with regulations for every new regulation on the statute book that binds corporations, then two have to be struck off. And I think their rule lasted about as long as my soft toy rule. So uh, with the Trump thing, is it also what you might call a soft toy rule as well? Are we saying that we're going to reduce regulation? Is it something that we're going to try and do for about three weeks and then go, yeah, too hard? Or do you think it is part of the DNA now that they are going to try and remove regulation? I, I think it's going to be a soft toy rule. Um, I, I'm going to switch metaphors and say it reminds me a lot of Swiss cheese that it's Number one, the executive order is full of holes. And number two, as you eventually ignore Swiss cheese, it gets moldy and then you throw it away. And I think that's what's going to happen here. Um, you know, there are so many holes to uh, that executive order. 
I'm not necessarily opposed to the spirit of that regulatory kill order. I don't see how it works in practice. For compliance officers in particular, it has been confirmed that rule does not apply to the SEC, uh, nor would it apply to corporate accounting rules or to the PCAOB because those are independent agencies. Uh, so a lot of what you worry about, like, you're still going to worry about it in volume. Uh, it struck me as just another instance of Donald Trump not really knowing what he's doing and sitting behind a desk signing fancy executive orders that don't work in the real world. Um, Congress ultimately is going to be the one that drives a lot of this. And we've got no idea what the final form of those things might take. Uh, but this executive order, I, I think that, you know, you might see less rules get promulgated for a while. Mm -hmm. But this idea of two for one, if you can make it work, that's great. But this is not going to become a fixed point around which all other regulatory stuff orbits in this country. It's just it's not. So, Jonathan, uh, sitting across the pond with a very uh, jaundiced English eye on America, uh, what would uh, what is really um, intrigued you over the past three weeks? And there have been some specific things that have both come out of Europe and come out of the United States aimed towards Europe. How do you see those working for the compliance officer sitting in the United States who has business interest in the United Kingdom, in the European Union, or indeed across the globe? I, I think it's been a fascinating three weeks. Um, as, as you know, last time we spoke, I was in the U.S., and I obviously picked a really strange week to be there. Uh, it, it was obviously rapidly changing. My My view, actually, the more I look at it, is that some of these measures that are designed to promote American businesses from Trump actually will do the opposite. And I can think of a couple that are probably worth mentioning. The first, I think, is the let's just uh, we talked about this this before, I think, on an earlier podcast that I thought that Trump had to go out of the blocks quite quickly to endorse Privacy Shield if it was to live. So for a little bit of history, the uh, European court struck down the safe harbor deal, which was the way that many uh, U.S. corporations used to transfer data from Europe back to the mothership. And even if they hadn't signed up to safe harbor themselves, then most of the vendors that they used did. Uh, so they relied on the safe harbor scheme for things like payroll, for things like travel management software, Sabanoxley helplines, recruitment, all of that sort of stuff that the modern corporation has outsourced. And uh, when safe harbor disappeared, there was something of a tailspin. Most businesses went into something called standard contractual clauses. And then eventually a new scheme called Privacy Shield was put in place, uh, or Privacy Shield, if you prefer, Tom, to replace Safe Harbor. I do prefer, yes. <laughs> and without getting too much into the, into the weeds, uh, Privacy Shield, Privacy Shield, was based on, a, in part, on an executive memo, if you like, uh, Presidential Policy Directive 28, which... Uh, which Obama signed. And there was this worry as to whether or not 
Trump would rip up PPD 28. And then this drama sort of magnified when uh, Trump passed the enhancing public safety order, which seemed to remove the protection of the US Privacy Act from uh, people who were not United States citizens or lawful permanent residents. And many in Europe, uh, one lead MEP, for example, Jan Albrecht, who's been very a very prominent critic of Privacy Shield, said, well, if Trump really did that, then that's the end of Privacy Shield. And then we've had a lot of debate in Europe uh, and also with a number of U.S. commentators and U.S. lawyers saying, well, that's a complete overreaction and, and Privacy Shield uh, is alive and well and healthy. And But I honestly don't believe that's the case. I think we have to look at the various threats, both to standard contractual clauses uh, and Privacy Shield in the round. So the first of which is... Uh, the original action against Safe Harbor was brought by an Austrian uh, lawyer called uh, Max Schrems. He's somebody that I think we've talked about before. I uh, uh, interviewed Schrems in October and talked quite extensively about this case. It's listed for three weeks. It started in Dublin uh, this week. The uh, They're still very much at the sort of opening skirmishes, if you like, the Irish Data Protection Commissioner, who's bringing the case, has said that she doesn't think that uh, U.S. law is adequate to protect uh, EU citizens. Uh, it's Facebook's turn at the moment. They've brought in evidence from a U.S. lawyer uh, whose opinion is that it does. I think the uh, fact that Trump's in office makes all of that more challenging. Bear in mind that it seems to me the, bur the burden of proof is on Trump to prove that he's uh, a respecter of the privacy rights of EU nationals. I don't think the burden of proof really is on those who object in the EU to, to prove opposite. And, and let's just say that I don't think Trump has even got to neutral yet on on uh, persuading people that he's protecting rights, you know, particularly when the only act he seems to have done is to uh, remove rights from, from EU nationals. We're not sure what he's done to this presidential uh, directive from the Obama administration. It sort of still appears on the White House website, but archived as an act of Obama. So it's not adopted by the new administration's website. And even if they get through this hearing uh, that's listed in Ireland at the moment, and by the way, I don't think the Irish hearing will be conclusive. I think that will be referred to the European Court as well. That's maybe 18 months. There's a whole host of other challenges to Privacy Shield, which are fueled by uh, what Trump has done since taking office. So, for example, there are two actions in another European court one brought by an Irish pressure group and one brought by a consortium of French pressure groups, effectively the sort of French equivalent of ACLU. Um, the UK government uh, 
announced this week that they were likely to intervene in that case. The US government wants to intervene as well. And this, I think, is unusual in both this case and the Schrems hearing that the US government are effectively applying to be, you know, become an intervener in the proceedings, which is very rare. And again, also pushes, I think, more of a burden on them to reduce evidence into the court saying that uh, Trump's all for non-foreigners to have rights in in, in U.S. courts. Uh, in addition, as I've said, Jan Albrecht in the European Parliament is monitoring Trump closely. German regulators before Trump uh, assumed office sent a questionnaire to 500 multinational corporations saying that they weren't especially happy about data transfer and they wanted details of the mechanisms that these multinationals were using. The Article 29 group, which is a group of European data protection regulators, announced uh, this week that they were going to start the annual review of Privacy Shield. Some might say that's a month or two earlier than would have been expected. Again, I'm assuming because of Trump. And in addition, the um, the European Commissioner, who, if you like, was the architect of uh, Privacy Shield, has said that she wants to meet the Trump administration and discuss face to face what his intentions are. And I detect some uh, some withdrawing from uh, Privacy Shield. You know, it doesn't seem to be the favoured child of that commissioner anymore. You know, when it was announced, she was saying, oh, I named it personally. I came up with the name. We don't seem to be seeing any of that in recent speeches. And um, and so I think that uh, he might well cause real issues. And, and where we don't really understand this transatlantic data flow issue is I think if you're sitting where Trump is, you probably say, well, whoopee do. I'm removing the rights of non-US nationals, and that's a good thing. But it isn't, because it means that all of those technology businesses in the US who maintain technology for people on a worldwide basis will find it much harder to employ people in the US to do that. This isn't a net bringer uh, of jobs to the US, Trump's actions are. They're a net reducer. If I'm trying to outsource, I don't know, my data inputting, my choices at the moment are somewhere like Manila, which is probably 50% of the cost of putting that resource on US soil, uh, or the US, let's say they're my two choices. Well, if I remove Privacy Shield, then it's actually easier to transfer the data from a regulatory point of view to the Philippines than the US. Why on earth would I choose outsourcing organizations in the US when it's double the cost and considerably more effort? And what we fail to understand here is it's not, you know, whilst ever we can have all these academic arguments about actually the law is as solid as it was under Obama, to me, that matters not a jot. It's perception. And if I'm trying, I'm a multinational corporation and I'm trying to negotiate with works councils in Germany, it's difficult enough to do so 
under Obama, it's 10 times more difficult under Trump, unless and until he comes out very strongly and says, I'm the first guy to respect European privacy rights. And as an aside, even if he does that, that's a somewhat more challenging task, especially when his resort in Scotland, there are, let's just say, at least allegations that the resort in Scotland didn't comply with UK data privacy law when he was running that uh, that operation. So I, I'm afraid to say I think the whole situation's a challenge. Do you want to get me on travel ban as well, Tom? Because I'm equally strident about that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, travel ban, I think, is much the same side of the coin. You know, if we, uh, for tech businesses, they rely on global talent moving globally. If I look at, for example, there's an announcement just before the holiday season that Google were going to re- uh, locate 3,000 people into London. Did they see travel ban coming? Maybe. Uh, again, uh, these, the, you know, you can't try and have jobs on U.S. soil in, in the technology world and be restrictive on who can be moved there. You know, the likes of Google want global talent and they want to be able to move that freely. And I also think this proposal to look at people's social media accounts will have a similar effect as well. You know, if I'm a Google employee, if I'm a Facebook employee, then I, you know, by my very nature, make a lot of social media postings. Some of them are likely to be political. If we're going to censor people's social media accounts and demand their passwords at the border, then we might think from a US point of view, that's a good thing. But how would we feel if we were to go to another country that we would regard uh, as more oppressive? You know, to give you one example, it's well known that my firm have taken a stand against modern slavery. We think it's an evil. We think that the trafficking of small girls for prostitution is a bad thing for example. But we have had people, you know, write into our firm, email to our firm to say that we don't understand certain faiths where the ability to use young girls as prostitutes is part of the faith. Now, whether I believe that or not, if I'm a lawyer, should I stop uh, saying that I would rather people didn't use young girls as prostitutes? because I might have to go to X, Y, or Z country that's going to look at my social media postings? Do I actually have to do the opposite? Do I have to say, it is a good thing to exploit small girls because I want to get into those countries smoothly and I want things in favor of that administration to show in my social media accounts. And I think it's a very, very slippery road when we start looking at who can come into a country on the basis of what they've written. And whilst ever it's a proposal at this stage is my understanding, my understanding is also that at least one BBC journalist has already been held in a small room at an airport in the US because he was of Asian extraction whilst they read through the the posts that he filed on behalf of the BBC, amongst other things. And I guess Matt can speak far more on the freedom of the press and whether journalists should be oppressed or not than I can. But I think 
you know, we have sometimes got to speak out about these things. And I know, Tom, that, that if anyone listens to this podcast, that that just means that I've got another two hours in a small room myself next time I come into the US. But I think sometimes we just have to say that these, you know, there is no proven evidence that looking through some social media profiles identifies terrorists, stops them, stops harm. In fact, many of the people in the security services are saying it has the opposite effect, that it alienates people, that it makes them more likely to identify with radical groups. We just need to think these things through. And I think it's the same theme as Matt said from the start. You know, the theme is chaos and ignorance, really, rather than a grand strategic plan than, than is thought through properly. Well, Jonathan, let's uh, let's play Jonathan. that great lawyer game of uh, down the slippery slope, because one of the things that has concerned me from the business perspective is a tit for tat, uh, country to country response in terms of, number one, a travel ban. But if we take it two or three steps further, which is, of course, we lawyers are trained to do down that slippery slope, uh, what happens um, if it ban becomes Muslims from EU countries? What happens if the ban becomes then uh, EU countries, period? Will there be a, a response from either the United Kingdom or EU countries or indeed any other country? And the same with uh, the requirements to give out uh, social media passwords or other information that's not currently requested to travel with or without a visa. I, I think that's right. I mean, I think there will be a, a, a tit for tat. I mean, I think we've already seen that with the countries on the uh, on the banned list who are now on the suspended banned list. And I think that the, the reality is, I mean, I think we got back to those days with the original, um, you, you know, if you look at um, uh, the incidents at, um, I'm now struggling, the small airport outside Washington, D.C., where they kept uh, they kept stopping Ted Kennedy, didn't they? Because the DHS computer matched him to a terrorist. And there was that episode, wasn't there, I think, when he said, they said to him, have you got any other means of identifying yourself? And he had with him, I think, a copy of the Washington Post, and he pointed to himself on the, you know, the front page of the Washington Post and said, that's me. And, um, and, and, and what that tells you, uh, I think, from a security perspective, is your system isn't learning. And your system probably isn't learning because it's overloaded with data. You get the same in an internal investigation, get the same with e-discovery. And the difficulty of looking at everybody's social media posts is how can you do that effectively? You know, it's easy to find a needle in a needle container. It is hard to find a needle in a haystack. And so the answer isn't to demand haystacks. The answer is to try and focus on what it is we're looking for. And my understanding is that the security services are you know, are, are doing a pretty good job on that at the moment. We don't necessarily need to pour more data in and make that job more difficult for them. Um, so, and again, I'm I'm not the authority in this, but, but many people who are connected with that world on both sides of the pond, I think, 
have said that it isn't an appropriate way of trying to to target evildoers. Jay, did you have something for Jonathan? Um, I, I did, but we, we've kind of answered it. I think the way I kind of want to wrap this up before we get into our rants is um, <laughs> earlier in the... Like that um, wasn't one, Jay. Uh, earlier in the podcast uh, Matt had really pointed to the ineptitude of the uh, current administration to really get everybody on board and get their messages out there and um, I I think I'd like to just take it to um, a further level and just talk about the lack of sophistication that the um, new administration is showing and uh you know uh, i like to use a 50 cent word as good as anybody else but the president's uh, analysis of most policies or things that are that they're very very bad and uh i just don't see the uh any examples of you know really t- type of uh sophisticated thought going on and uh Further, when Matt said there are two divergence things, there's what the Trump administration may want to do and then what the grand tweeter does. So uh, I think I would like to go into the first uh, ranting here and uh, I'll make it very short. But um, the president said all along on the campaign trail that there was going to be so much winning and we were going to get tired of winning. And I think he got his letters mixed up and he meant that there was going to be so much whining. And I'm getting tired of whining about the way that facts don't line up and the way that the judiciary does not want to rubber stamp what the president wants. So uh, let's stop with the whining and let's get going with that winning. It's week four. Get it going, buddy. That's it. Well, Jonathan, you started on a mini rant. Why don't you just sort of uh, continue out with uh, what's the, the really the one thing that's stuck in your craw? Uh, the, the real thing that struck in my craw, I think, is the lack of certainty. I think businesses, you know, would like lower taxes. They'd like less regulation. They'd like all sorts of things. But the key thing businesses want is certainty and predictability. If you don't have certainty, you don't have predictability, you can't plan, you can't invest, you can't employ people, you can't build facilities. So if Trump really, really does want to help either U.S. industry or multinational industry, any sort of industry, let's have a bit of certainty and stability and predictability. I yearn for the days of boring. (laughs) How very English. (laughs) <laughs> Matt, do you have a rant in there? You know, I do. And I'm going to actually switch gears a little bit to rant not uh, rant not about Donald Trump specifically, but to mention that you know, we do have other parts of the Republican regime here who are still moving forward. And what's caught my eye in the last few days is the House Financial Services Committee, the chairman, Jeb Henserling, he has unveiled a memo of what he would like to do for reforming financial regulation in this country. It's going to be called the Choice Act 2.0, succeeding the Choice Act 1.0, which went nowhere last year. Um, But when you get into what Henserling is looking to do, I think people need to 
pay attention to, he is in many ways seeking to dismantle the risk assessment ability of regulators looking at systemic issues. Um, and I think that what we're setting ourselves up for with some of the reforms he's proposing will be an inability to keep aware of what systemic risks might be accumulating in our system. For example, he proposes to abolish the Office of Financial Research. I know everybody's going to say, what? OFR was established by Dodd-Frank to have a very wide-ranging uh, ability to look at data in the financial industry and try and figure out what systemic risks may or may not be existing there. Uh, the Choice Act 2.0 also curtails uh, similar research abilities in the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. It takes a few other whacks at um, compliance with Sarbanes-Oxley Section 404, the uh, threshold for having your internal controls audited uh, by an outside audit firm. Uh, it would raise that dramatically and exempt many small companies from that burden. There's already evidence that when you do that, uh, because very small companies are exempt from it, they're more likely to experience fraud or financial restatements. And now we're going to expand the pool of companies in that potential area of risk. Um, there are some parts of this law I think are okay. There are some parts I would accept because Republicans are in charge in Washington. They are going to do some things that are in their cohesive conservative ideology and their worldview that are okay. But we need to be aware that are we disabling our ability to assess systemic risks in this country? And some of what he's proposing, I think, would do that, which will not be good come 2025 or 29 or 22 when we have another financial crisis that seems to have come out of nowhere. Where did it come from? It came from back in 2017 when some people thought it would be a good idea not to pay heed to systemic risk. Uh, and that's been on my mind lately. So I have a rant that really goes to the business community and the either unintended consequence of the chaos in Washington or perhaps the intended consequence of Trump's uh, actions. And a fellow named Seth Clareman, who runs the Baupost Group, circulated a letter where he said that exuberant investors have focused on the potential benefits of stimulative tax cuts while mostly ignoring the risks from America First protectionism and the erection of new trade barriers. And it's this erection of trade barriers by these actions that really uh, concerns me uh, sitting in Houston in a global energy company uh, or global energy focused city, uh, Trump can hold off some effects of automation and globalization by cajoling companies to keep work and jobs in America. But it really bolsters inefficiency and non-competitiveness of U.S. companies. And I see that as a huge risk going forward. Uh, the second thing is, if we shut down the borders, either with a wall or psychically, who's going to buy our products? Uh, are we simply going to buy all this surplus oil that uh, my brethren companies here in Houston develop because we have been unleashed from regulatory shackles? Uh, somebody's got to buy that uh, petroleum. Somebody's got to buy that gasoline. Somebody's got to buy the something. So the um, I really view this as either 
you know, I view it as an unintended consequence, but perhaps it is an intended consequence that it's going to be the start of America going down a very slow road where it loses its ability to compete economically in a global uh, business environment. So, gentlemen, this has been a really interesting uh, podcast. Uh, I greatly appreciate uh, everyone taking the time to um, write on this, think about it, and I'm sure we will be uh, visiting on this further down the road. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Everything Compliance. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate us. It would help our rankings and help us get the word out about this most outstanding podcast with the top compliance analysts across the globe. Also, if you have any questions, please email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you will join us for our next episode of Everything Compliance. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.